Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, December 2nd, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Kishore Hari, my co-host, is just back from a much-needed vacation to India, so we'll let him recover before bringing him back onto the show. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Today's episode is brought to you by Heifer International. Heifer International's mission is to end hunger and poverty while caring for the earth. Heifer International works to end hunger by providing livestock, agricultural training, tools, and education to small-scale farmers. So give a gift of Heifer this holiday season. Check out heifer.org slash minds for more information or call 888-548-6437. That's heifer.org slash minds. Heifer International, help end hunger. This week's episode is also sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to you. To get $50 off towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. If you're actually listening to this show on December 2nd, and you happen to live in Madison, Wisconsin, and you happen to have tickets to Once Upon a Christmas Cheery in the lab of Shakashiri, the chemistry department, come and say hello. I'm there this weekend uh, as a guest in uh, Professor Shakashiri's lab for the 47th annual holiday science demonstration show. Um, The uh, shows are Saturday, December 3rd at 1 p.m. and Sunday, December 4th at 1 p.m. and 4 p.m., Tickets are sold out, unfortunately, but it will be broadcast on public television. And I will have more details for you, hopefully, um, next week and potentially put a link up on our website. It's a lot of fun. It's for children, mainly. uh, But it's definitely a different way, a different holiday show than you're probably used to. 
So maybe you're a little tired of turkey after Thanksgiving and looking for some other protein source. I'm a big fan of fish. I eat a lot of it, but I also know that it can be bad for different species if we overfish it and potentially also for the environment if we overfarm it. So in order to understand the kinds of decisions that I'm making in terms of fish and their impact, I turned to a new book by investigative journalist Lee Vandervoo. Her writing can be found in the New York Times and Reuters, USA Today, among other places. She's just published a book called The Fish Market, Inside the Big Money Battle for the Ocean and Your Dinner Plate. And I have to say, it was very revealing. Some of the things that I took for granted about the choices that I make about the fish that I eat were overturned by reading this fascinating book. So that'll be our interview for today. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my conversation with Lee Vandervoo on fish. There's still time to find the perfect custom gift, or even to make it. And that's where Blurb comes in. Blurb custom photo books make gifting easy. It's a free bookmaking platform that allows you to create customized, professional quality photo books for loved ones from your computer, iPhone, and iPad. Want to throw an album from your phone onto the pages of a book? You can make it a book in minutes with their new mobile app. It's fast and easy book creation. It makes thoughtful, one-of-a-kind gifts that won't be forgotten, especially great for family photo books or travel books or even cookbooks. Turn your most popular holiday recipes into a cookbook the whole family can enjoy or relive your family's memorable moments in a photo book featuring the best of 2016. You can print one copy or many. They have free creation tools and a range of formats. Think photo books, trade books, magazines, ebooks. You can choose from a range of square, portrait, and landscape sizes. I personally love Blurb. It was the very first photo book that I had printed, and I still to this day look through both the travel books and the wedding book that I created on Blurb.com. So, want to create a custom gift this holiday? Go to Blurb.com minds and enter code MINDS for 25% off unique holiday gifts. That's blurb.com slash minds and code minds at checkout for 25% off. Blurb, make a book, leave your mark. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. The mattress industry has inherently forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to the consumer. A Casper mattress provides resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort. Casper's mattress is one of a kind. It's a new hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. Mattresses can often cost well over $1,500, but Casper mattresses cost between $500 for a twin-size mattress, $600 for a twin extra-large, $750 for a full-sized, $850 for queen-sized, and only $950 for a king-sized mattress. Casper understands that buying a mattress online can have consumers wondering how this is possible. But buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. It's that simple. Statistically, lying on a bed for four minutes in a showroom has no correlation to whether it's the right bed for you. That's why Casper has turned the buying process into a risk-free experience. Casper understands the importance of truly trying out a mattress that, in reality, you actually, hopefully, spend a third of your life on. It's an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Just the right sink, just the right bounce. It has those two technologies, a hybrid of latex foam and memory foam. So 
Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash minds and using code minds. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Lee Vandervoo. Hi, thanks for having me. So one of the things that I feel like I got right in terms of my ability to be a good environmental citizen is to buy only sustainable seafood. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of the easiest choice at the supermarket or in the restaurant because I can take out my little, you know, Monterey Aquarium watch thing or, you know, look for the sustainable food symbol. And your book made me feel really bad. <laughs> No. Because clearly, I have a lot to learn. And clearly, some of the choices that I'm making really don't have the implications that I think they do. So let's start from the very beginning. What does it mean when we see that something is called sustainable? Well, it means it's ecologically sustainable. So you're on the right path with your choices. The US does have some of the most sustainable seafood in the world. Um, and it's good to be headed in that direction. So but that's not the whole story, of course, right? So, <laughs> yeah, it's so sustainable ecologically, though, means that I can eat as much as I want of that particular fish or as much as is available of that particular fish, and I'm not in endangering that fish to extinction. Is that what that means? Right. That's what that means. Okay. So, so, but the consequences of that, uh, you know, are are more prolific, right? So um, so let's say, let's start with uh, the pollock, which is the first fish that you talk about in your book. Um, and this is, you know, a kind of poster child of sustainability, right? It is indeed. So and, and why is that? Well, it feeds 3 billion people uh, in the world. And it does it without fishing that particular species into oblivion. And so, um, you know, the the whole premise behind sustainability certification is if the fish that is there today can be there next year and 10 years from now and 20 years from now, that's met its goal. Um, but certification doesn't go so far as to ask broader questions about the ecosystem and about the people that live there. So, but let's, let's sticking to Pollock for a minute. Why is it that we can eat as much Pollock as we want and there'll still be more in the sea? Well, we can't eat as much as we want. There's a limit on how much can be caught. And it just so happens that Pollock is extremely abundant and lots of it can be caught and that population still returns. So because lots of it can be caught at once, that's really one of the sort of cultural, socio-cultural issues that you bring up first in, in the book. Um, so let's talk about first about how Pollock is fished these days. Well, it's factory fishing in a lot of cases. There are some small boats out there, but there are some very, very large boats um, that are, you know, they're not what people would expect. A lot of Pollock is caught essentially by ships that are, maybe they have about 70 people on them. Um, they're fishing a couple shifts a day. Uh, the products are processed in a factory on the boat. Um, and they come out the other side looking in a lot of cases like dimensional lumber. They're, they're pressed into bricks and, and just fr flash frozen and prepared for sort of the next landslide, landside conveyor belts where they are then cut into ready-made protein fodder. Um, and that's fish sticks, that's little fish fillets um, that can be roe and kamamboku. It can be even little fresh-looking grilled fillets with, with stripes of grilled tread. But it, it's not 
a fish per se. It, it is a, a processed product that then cut back into that. And that's what really struck me when I was reading your book, this idea that you know, when, I, when I go and pick up a box of fish sticks, you know, for my son and it says sustainable on it, I, I kind of imagine this, you know, grizzly fisherman on his boats, you know, putting out a fishing line and catching this fish and, you know, bringing it somewhere. And, you know, I, I mean, obviously, I didn't think things through. Um, but the kind of boat that you describe in the book is, is just as you said, it's like a factory and some of the same uh, challenges that the factory workers face there, we see in other factories, like in garment worker factories, etc, where, you know, it's very long shifts, uh, people feel as if they can't that they're kind of almost they can't leave because it's expensive if they if they have to cut their contracts and so forth. So can you talk a little bit about the experience of the people who work on those boats? Well, I certainly heard stories like that. I, I heard stories of people who had a very um, difficult time on the boats. But also these are folks that are mostly recruited from um, faraway places who have experience in fisheries. In many cases, they're used to very different economies. Micronesia, for example, is a place from which these laborers come. And um, these jobs can be a saving grace for people. They're uh, a living wage. But it is very, very hard work. It's very rote. It can be... Um, incredibly repetitive, and they're working very long shifts. Um, they're at sea on contracts. If they have difficulty making it to the end of that contract, they are looking at paying um, pretty stiff penalties for needing to get back to land. I did hear stories while I was reporting this about people who couldn't hack it, um, purposely injuring themselves in order to get off the boats. Um, that isn't so, so common, but um, it just kind of spoke to me of the psychological difficulty that these jobs can have. Um, it is very, very isolating work. Um, at the same time, people do enjoy it. And it's just not what we imagine when we think about sustainable seafood. I mean, it sounds a little bit like, uh, you know, when we think about organic food products, uh, that they come from a single farm and, and that there's all these, you know, really kind of this almost like nostalgic uh, feeling of, of, of what, how that food comes to us and that some of the same issues that have plagued the organic food industry uh, are plaguing the fishing industry, even when we ha label something sustainable. Um so I want to talk about that in more depth in a minute, but I, I just want to stick a little bit more with Pollock for the moment to illustrate some of these ideas. Um, and so, you know, one of the misnomers, I guess, that or one of the misconceptions that I had about sustainable seafood is I, I didn't really think so much about what the impact of fishing Pollock, which is abundant, would have on species that share that environment that are not so abundant. And that even though, you know, eating Pollock is 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 good from the perspective of the Pollock that it's still going to be there. I mean, it's obviously not what the Pollock wants, <laughs> but it's particularly bad for other species who might get caught, for example, in the nets of these big boats. Yeah, bycatch is a reality of, of fishing, of any kind of fishing and certainly modern fishing. I think you could say that the Pollock industry has done an awful lot, maybe more than any other fishing industry to prevent that kind of um, accidental catch. They call it bycatch in the industry, but it, the volumes can be significant. Um, and it's just... Uh, it's a difficult thing because those products can't be brought to market. They have to be thrown back dead. So yeah, that's I mean that, that's that's a shame. And you know, by those products, what we're talking about are you know often marine mammals and you know other kinds of animals that we 
would not want to catch you know, if we're going, you know, we, we would not want harm to, as we're buying something that has a sustainable label on it. Yeah, indeed. And and so the big the big ones are halibut and salmon in that industry. Um, there's certainly a lot of discussion about whether or not the pollock industry is fishing a little bit too aggressively on uh, what we would call juvenile um, halibut grounds. Nobody quite understands that fish real well, so it's hard to see, but there's a lot of inquiry in that area right now. And um, certainly there's a lot of salmon catch and um, that, you know, in relation to how much pollock is caught, it's minuscule, but it is still, those are both fish that are very important culturally in the region that pollock is caught, which is in the Bering Sea off the west coast of Alaska. And has our labeling of pollock as sustainable affected the volume of fish that gets caught uh, there and therefore some of the um, abilities of, of the people who are, n- are native to those regions or local to those regions uh, to either run their own fishing businesses or catch the fish themselves for food? Well, the, the labeling doesn't so much affect the volume that can be caught, but I think what it does is it, is it gives people um, the impression that these things don't occur. I guess I guess my question is, you know, if I label something as a species as sustainable, does that spe- you know, does that lead to more of that species being caught because more people buy sustainable than non-sustainable fish or has that not made a difference yet? I had a pretty hard cap on that catch in the first place, but I think what is difficult about sustainability labeling and how it works is that it doesn't take into account broader ecosystem impacts. By saying uh, that catching pollock is sustainable, it's just saying that pollock is still going to be there in 10 years or 20 years if the industry continues to catch it at that rate. It doesn't cast that net, if you would, wider and wider and start to talk about questions of whether um, taking that amount of pollock out of the ecosystem has consequences for, say, um, marine mammals or seabirds or even people who depend on those populations for subsistence. And have we started to see these effects on those other animals and populations of people? There's certainly an effect on seabirds by pollock um, that is not really completely addressed, and that's mostly to do with their accidental kill aboard boats. We have seen declines in marine mammal populations, and it's not in, it's not entirely clear why and whether Pollock is the source of the problem. But there's certainly a strong feeling among Native Alaskans in that that part of the world that um, they have seen a shift in relation to the Pollock industry's growth. So, how do you think? There are parallels between the organic food movement and the sustainable fish movement. What do you mean by the sustainable fish movement? Sorry, just like the slow fish folks? Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess when I think about the decisions that we make at the grocery store, we think that if we buy organic food, it's healthier. That's not always the case. Um, and we think that if we buy sustainable labeled fish or fish labeled as wild caught, uh, that it's also better kind of objectively, whether because it contains more nutrients or because it it harms the environment less or the ecosystem less. So 
I guess what I'm asking you is, you know, there has been a, quite a bit of research done on whether or not organic foods, for example, contain the same amount of nu- nutrients or even more nutrients uh, than non-organic foods, whether they uh, have the same you know, level of, of health, right? And I, I don't want to get into that debate here. But I'm wondering if there are some of the same misconceptions about uh, food that we think that is wild caught or sustainable. So for example, um, we talked a little bit about sustainability already, in terms of, you know, what that means um, with respect to the species. But is there any evidence that eating fish that is wild caught versus farmed is better for you? If there is, I don't know. Okay. So 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 the decisions for making or the, so, so for the reasons that we would pay more, for example, which I think is often the case when we go to the grocery store for a wild caught or, uh, you know, a sustainable species. I mean, I guess are those two, am I conflating those two ideas? Should, should we really be talking about wild caught and sustainable as two different labels? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that there is a lot of um, sustainable wild-caught seafood in the United States. And in fact, I think it's some of the best sustainable wild-caught seafood in the world. I think the United States does an excellent job tethering science to these caps that it puts on catch. That hasn't always been the case, but that has been the case lately, and especially since 2006, when Congress said that there had to be an actual relationship between science and catch limits. Um, So I feel very good about the state of sustainable seafood in America. I think that where we struggle is um, perhaps in the social justice issues that are related to how we enforce those caps on the catch. So that gets me to the sort of second major theme that I wanted to talk about, which is the privatization of this resource. Um, So, you know, in your book, you describe that the way the waters and the resources of, you know, the animals that live in the waters are regulated is different um, when we compare to the other kinds of natural resources that we have. So can you can you lay that out for us? Yeah, absolutely. The United States about six years ago started um, making a push towards sustainable seafood, and the goals were to increase the ecological health of seafood, make fishing safer again, and also start to bring better products to market for consumers. But unfortunately, that push has had the effect in a lot of places of unraveling the economic fabric of coastal communities. And how this happened was through a regulatory change. And the change um, works like this. The, The United States puts limits on how much seafood can be caught in any given year. And but the way that that cap is enforced can vary. Um, So beginning in 2010, the U.S. started to favor a new um, tool to enforce that cap, and it's called catch shares. And how it works is that the government took the pie, if you will, of all the fish that can be caught and sliced it and gave it away in ownership to people who had a stake in the industry. And the bet was that ownership automatically equates good stewardship, that if you give people a stake in the ocean, they will have uh, an interest in taking care of it because as the ocean health recovers and species rebound and and are more numerous, um, 
that person has a, a chance to gain. But, um, you know, it was a bit of a gamble. It was like giving 100 people houses and betting that everybody was going to cut their grass. You, you just don't know. I mean, property ownership means different things to different people. And so the effect of this change has been a bit mixed. Um, lots of people have become really good stewards. And those are the people that are bringing us these incredible seafood products. Um, but many simply became landlords. And that means that a lot of workers in the fishing industry now rent their right to be there. It makes it harder for them to climb the ladder and it, it unmoors to some extent the small business fabric that's been the economic spine of coastal communities for many, many years in America. And it also opens the door for investors and corporate interests to begin to take ownership of the ocean. So that means that you can have a corporation that literally owns the the rights to a certain amount of fish. And, you know, one can imagine then that um, if that becomes more and more of a monopoly, that that the way that fish is caught is, you know, going to be tied to the the way the corporation works um, at the cost of the local fishermen. Is that is that what you mean? Yes. Yeah. So one of the kind of side effects then of that is that it might become more difficult for us to have transparency about exactly where the fish is coming from. You you talk about this in terms of traceability uh, of the fish. So can you talk a little bit about why that might be an issue um, and, and, and sort of why we should care about exactly where that our fish is coming from? Well, I think, you know, as I, as I said before, um, the great news is that the U.S. does have some of the most sustainable seafood in the world, and I think we can feel really good about that. And I always tell people, when in doubt, buy American. Um, I still have hope that some of these issues are going to be fixed. Um, but if we want to make choices about the social justice issues that are occurring on the sea, and we want to say, you know, maybe I don't want to buy my seafood from a corporate owner. Maybe I would rather buy from a small business fisherman who's still out there on a small boat um, catching fish sustainably. Uh, you have to push a little further into the marketplace. And it sounds really complicated, but I think, um, you know, the very simple way to translate it is uh, know your fishermen, which is something that the folks at, at Slow Fish, which is a sort of derivative of the slow food movement, like to say. Um, and there are ways in which I think the marketplace is making that a little bit easier for people. For example, community-supported fisheries where folks can buy a share, um, much like you can buy a, a share in a farm, um, a, a community-supported agriculture um, farm. So these things are possible. And also just having the conversation, talking to your fishmonger, talking to folks in restaurants and trying to push this issue of what's the story of this fish? How did it get here? Um, I think that's a really important thing to do. And that brings me to the reason that you sort of started writing this book. You you start out in your introduction talking about how you wrote an article about fishing and then, you know, you're having a beer with a friend and uh, then you made a bet that, you know, you said you'd never write another book, another another article about fishing. And then he he made a bet that you would after he heard a story. So tell us the story that got you onto uh, this book. 
Yeah, that that's that's true. That's how this happened. The book is very much the product of my lost bet, and the story that he started telling me was was really about these economic trends, about um, more and more corporations and investors stepping in, and about the hardship in particular communities where you can see workers paying 50%, sometimes 80% of what they earn to a landlord just for the opportunity to go to work. In essence, it really is uh, like the new American sharecropping. And when I heard that, I was really, really interested in just checking it out and, and trying to do some writing on it. So um, I went up to Alaska and I, I did a couple stories and I thought that that would initially that that would be the end of my interest in it. And for me, it just opened up years and years of, of research. You know, you sort of make the point that we, we sort of think about if we buy local from the local fishermen, then we are supporting um, that particular individual, but that more and more um, the trend has been towards these bigger corporations taking over and then sort of renting out uh, their catch to the local fishermen. Is that is that an accurate description or would they or is it more like the corporations then come in and take over and, um, you know, bring those fish to market and they can call it sustainable, but it doesn't have the same um, kind of, you know, idea that this is a local fisherman making a making a living? Yeah, the vast majority of scenarios that I encountered were indeed um, scenarios where corporations had taken over the access to the resource, but were renting uh, the work out. I didn't see, gosh, I would be hard pressed to say that I saw any scenario where a corporation was the owner and also, um, gosh, I don't want to guess. So I'm just going to say most often the scenario I encountered was where the work was being rented. And did you, were there more, were there parts of the U.S. or or, uh, parts of the, you know, certain oceans or certain um, areas that were better than others? I mean, if, if a person had or, or did you see some of these same trends in, you know, the Gulf and the, you know, in, in the North Atlantic and off the you know waters of Alaska and so forth? Yeah, these trends affect pretty much everywhere in the coastal United States. And I would say most of the value of um, American uh, seafood is controlled in these systems now. Um that's the big dollar fish. So we're talking about uh, crab in Alaska, halibut in Alaska, off the Pacific, the sable fish, again, the halibut, some of the big um, flatfish like sole and flounder in the Gulf. We're talking about grouper, red snapper in the mid-Atlantic. It's the surf clams and quahogs that you see in a lot of soups and chowders. Um, and in New England, the cod and other ground fish. And have you also seen any effects of um, warming trends in the environment that are creating changes that, you know, is, is it is it something that's going to be hard for um, organizations in the government that regulate fish uh, to contend with the fact that the environment for the fish might be changing too? Is that is that even coming into the conversation? Or are people still, you know, assuming that the way that the oceans look today are how they're going to be, you know, in the next couple of years? It's definitely part of the conversation, and there aren't many fishermen that I have talked to who would dispute that global warming is an issue. You know, they're out there, and they see it for themselves. 
they see changes in how the fish migrate, um, the areas of the ocean that they used to find them in. It's something that does get talked about. It's not really being addressed from a regulatory perspective, but I think it is very much on the minds of conservationists and people who are regulators who have promoted this particular approach, um, you know, if you have people wanting to act as uh, good stewards, becoming converse, con- conservationists, they can then facilitate um, change and also gather information. And we have seen um, it has always been the case that a lot of climate and species research that goes on on the ocean happens on commercial fishing boats. Um, many people don't know, but Commercial fishing boats are regulated in part through uh, marine biologists who very often actually ride along on the fishing boats and they do sampling and testing there at sea. Some of them also do it at the dock. So now you're seeing a little more collaboration in some of these um, catch air systems where the fishermen are being a little bit more proactive about participating in that kind of research. And that, I think, is an upside um, that the government was hoping for, that conservation we're hoping for, and you do see that take hold. So we've been talking so far mainly about uh, American fishermen and American waters, but what about other parts of the world? Um, are you seeing the same catch share trend in other parts of the world? Um, and you know, as you mentioned, America seems to be better than other parts. So what are the parts of the world that you are most worried about in terms of what's happening in, in the fisheries? Well, right now in the U.S., I think you see more of a balance between corporate ownership and, um, you know, small business folks still being there. And you do see more small boats out there, even though a lot of those folks are having to rent to get in. Um, what concerns me, I think, is that we're very young to this policy as compared with other parts of the world. So places like Iceland, um, New Zealand that have used catcher systems for much longer than we have, have seen the marketplaces really, really consolidate to just a few fishermen and bigger boats. And that could be something that is in our future. And I think there are probably some cautionary tales out there that um, perhaps we haven't really spent enough time thinking about. So let's talk about some of those cautionary tales. Um, what worries you and if, if uh, either the American fisheries became less regulated or you know, we weren't paying as much attention about who was owning all the catch shares? I mean, you know, if I have a catch share, can I sell it to a corporation that ultimately will have a monopoly on a particular species of fish? Is that a possibility or are there rules in place to prevent that? That's a real possibility in my mind. In some cases, there are rules to prevent that and others not. Um, the systems are designed regionally. But the thing that often worries me is that these systems are governed by eight regulatory councils that are regional around the United States. And they're very, very unique. They don't operate like other um, federal advisory committees. They're outside the reach of the Freedom of Information Act in in many cases, so their staffs are not subject to Freedom of Information Act, though some of the members may be, in fact, all of the members may be, so I don't want to misstate that, Um, but their, their staffs are certainly outside the reach of the Freedom of Information Act. Um, lobbyists who petition these folks do not have to register or file reports. Um, and also 
research by the General Accounting Office has shown that uh, the members of uh, fishery management councils have not been particularly good about complying with or reporting according to conflict of interest rules. So, you know, you've got these groups that are um, very political overseeing this environment. I think um, there is huge potential for any caps on ownership to be legislated, lobbied, litigated out of the way. Um, and we really don't have a good regulatory structure for overseeing it. Um, I think also, you know, the potential right now we say in law that we don't allow for our natural resources to be uh, owned by foreign entities or by equity groups, but there's very clear evidence that that is in fact the case. I don't think that these structures do a good job preventing that kind of outcome. So let's take the case of New Zealand as a kind of cautionary tale. And, um, you know, what did you learn about sort of the way that catch share has evolved and uh, how the industry has evolved in New Zealand um, that we want to avoid here in the U.S.? I think what happened in New Zealand was the system got very, very, very deep into the rental marketplace. And it started to be that... um, foreign charter boats. So um, boats from other countries would make bids on coming in and catching the fish for the owners in New Zealand. And there started to be this race to the bottom of the the pricing. You know, folks just wanted to make the biggest possible profits. So they were hiring the cheapest labor. And and through this, um, ended up letting some slave ships into, uh, I would say, modern, modern day slave ships into the system. And it had really unfortunate consequences a few years ago um, when a ship sunk purely through uh, poor poor management off the coast of New Zealand. Uh, there were several deaths and just lots of heartache and damage. Um, and the there was an inquiry at that time into conditions on these vessels and they revealed some pretty horrifying circumstances. And that is not the fault of catch shares, but it it is the fault of a marketplace that increasingly puts downward pressure on its workers and doesn't have enough um, safeguards in place to make sure that people are actually paid and that the boats they are operating on are safe And uh, I fear that we could trend in this direction if we weren't careful about it. So if you want to be a responsible consumer caring not only about the fact that the fish that you're eating will, you know, the species will still be there even after you've had your dinner, um, but that the people who are involved in the industry are also being treated uh, with respect and dignity. What are the kinds of questions that you want to ask either your fishmonger or, um, you know, is, is it best to get your fish from a farmer's market type situation where you can actually talk to the person who catches the fish? Um, I mean, that's difficult for a lot of people because it's much more expensive in those kinds of environments. Um, so what would you what advice would you give to people who um, want to be responsible socially, but, you know, also want to be able to eat fish, which is healthy and um, not you know, not not being able to afford uh, the most boutique catch. Yeah, that can be real tricky. Um, I mean, farmed is always an option. 
Um, and I like to say uh, buying American, I still think, is a great idea. Um, these are very sustainable products. In spite of the social justice issues um, that I hope can be corrected, there's a lot to feel good about in these fisheries. We know that they're being properly managed. We know that the catch is well cared for. Um, so I think, you know, if people were to back away from American seafood now, really all that does is it starts to put the smaller and smaller boats that are already struggling out of work. And I would like to see people stick with that for a while and, and see if this situation can right itself. Um, but I think if you do have the resources to uh, to buy a more direct product, that doesn't always have to be more expensive. It can be as simple as just knowing um, what is your local seafood? What is near me? And maybe finding opportunities to connect with your coast. Um, I live in Oregon, and I know that on the Oregon coast, there are several spots where I can go and buy direct from fishermen. Um, even in the inland on the Columbia River, there are a couple places where I can go and I can buy my salmon direct from tribes. That really lowers the cost, and I know exactly where I got it. I'm surprised to hear you say farmed fish, because to me that I always thought that was a, a real no-no given the environmental effects that farming fish can have. It can indeed. Um, and, you know, I think that there's some selective buying that, that goes on there as well. And it's an area that I want to learn more about myself. But um, I went to a conference recently and I discussed this a little bit in the book Um some farmed fish now are really down to the absolute lowest feed to um, protein ratios. They call them conversion ratios in uh, in protein farming. So um, that may be a little bit nerdy. I'll explain it. Um, some of these some of these fish farms really are making far more efficient use of feeds and proteins than any other land-based farming. Um, some salmon can be farmed at a ratio of two to one that is far more efficient than farming crickets. And it's certainly far more efficient than farming beef or farming chicken or other meats. Crickets? You mean the cricket flower scones I made last <laughs> week were for nothing? <laughs> Crickets are pretty efficient, well, too, actually. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty proud of myself. I guess we'll have to rethink that. Um, well, on that note, you've made me rethink a lot of the decisions I make in terms of the food that I consume. So I want to thank you for that. And I want to encourage our listeners uh, to read Lee's book. It's called The Fish Market Inside the Big Money Battle for the Ocean and Your Dinner Plate. Lee Vandervoot, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and Ken Murayama. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your idea for the best chemistry experiment to demonstrate to children, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And Kishore Hari is at Science Quiche, and he'll be back next week.
And once again, this episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Thanks again to Heifer International for sponsoring today's episode. Heifer International's mission is to end hunger and poverty while caring for the earth. Heifer International works to end hunger by providing livestock, agricultural training, tools, and education to small-scale farmers. So give a gift of Heifer this holiday season. Check out heifer.org slash minds for more information or call 888-548-6437. That's heifer.org slash minds. Heifer International, help end hunger. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.